So John chapter 5, verses 16 through 47 this morning. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he says his father, what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that this testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray together while we're standing. Father, we um, take the words of Jesus very seriously, and now I pray that the impressions that may have been on some of our hearts as we just heard that 
piece of scripture read and, and heard the heart and words of Jesus to the religious leaders of his day, I, I would ask this morning that we would see how this communication and how these words and how these scriptures fit into our story and what you might say from these ancient days into our days. And so we ask now for the blessing uh, of your Holy Spirit to be upon your word as we know it is and upon the teaching of it that we might study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray we would properly understand your word and that you would convict us where that's needed and comfort us where we need that as well. And that all in all, God, you would continue to shape us into the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. You can have a seat. So John chapter 5, I was thinking about a lot this week. Um, one of the most provocative questions that the church has asked throughout the ages is the question, who killed Jesus? And that may seem like an obvious answer to you, but there are lots of nuances. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Was it the Roman soldiers who actually enacted his death? Was it the Jewish religious system and leaders who are the ones who essentially had him arrested and killed? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it our sins? As I came into Christianity, I heard that purported a lot. It was my sin that, that crucified the Christ. Or was it the father who crucified his son? Who killed Jesus who was responsible? And, and as I unpack the scriptures, I, I think that there's sort of a two-sided answer to this question Who's responsible for the death of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ? And I think from the divine perspective, we have to agree that the Bible teaches us that it was the Father's will to crucify the Son. It was, it was the Father in the Son. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. So a Father gives a Son. God gives himself. So it was the Father who killed or offered the son. But then from an earthly perspective, especially from a text like this this morning, I think we see that Jesus was killed by bad religion. And we see in John chapter 5, verse 18, that it was the Jewish leaders that were trying to kill Jesus. And in chapter 5, they began their plot, their diabolical plot to kill the Son of God. And so the main thing I want to table before us this morning from John chapter 5 verses 16 through 47 is just the subject of bad religion. And so just out of curiosity, I'm wondering what might come to some of our minds when we hear just the word religion. And for some of you, when you hear the word religion, it might conjure up thoughts of things that are holy, things that are good, things that are pious. For others, you might, when you hear the word religion, you might have, maybe that sounds bad or oppressive or restrictive. But the issue with the word religion is that the word itself is neither good nor bad. It's, it's a descriptor. Actually, the definition of religion is simply a system of faith and worship. So the, the word religion by itself isn't inherently good or bad. It's a descriptor. And what really matters is what type of religion are we talking about? And I don't know if you knew this, but the word religion is only used six times, and each one of those six times is in the New Testament. Three of those times are from Paul's mouth. 
And when Paul talks about religion, he's talking about his former religion in Judaism before he knew Jesus. And so that, that use of the word religion is sort of put in a negative light. It's Paul before he's confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road, if you remember that story. But then three of the six times is in one passage found in James chapter 1. Three times James writes about the right sort of religion. I'll just read it to you. James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves. So there you go. If you want good religion, learn to close your mouth more. Control your mouth more. And then their religion is worthless. So bad religion in James, he's saying it's a hypocritical life. It's when you live with the kind of duplicity that says, I have religion, but I don't control my tongue. But then James goes on to say this. He puts the clutch in and says, this is good religion. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this. This is good religion. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And so this morning, as we look at this very important subject of religion, um, we have to just really agree that it's not all good and it's not all bad when it comes to religion. But unfortunately, we have seen lots of examples of bad religion. For instance, the young Muslim men and women who will blow themselves up in the name of Allah in the name of their false religion. Or the crusades of the Middle Ages when Christians actually killed Muslims to take back the Holy Land in the name of God we killed. Or in the, during the Inquisitions when the church began to persecute, imprison, and kill heretics in the name of God and religion we tortured, imprisoned, and killed people in the name of the Christian God. Or as we've seen in the Roman Catholic Church, the abuse of children, or I don't know if you caught this, a few years back there was a Baptist preacher by the name of Wiley Drake from Buena Park, California, who prayed daily that God would kill President Obama in the name of bad religion. Uh, there's the religion that oppresses women and minorities and the, the, the disenchanted, and there's a religion that believes that science is the enemy of faith. But the answer, brothers and sisters, to bad religion is not no religion, it's good religion. It's learning how to worship God as religion, again, is simply a system of faith and worship. It's neutral. So in our story, in this text, the religious leaders were persecuting Jesus, and in doing so, they thought they were doing God's work. So there is a way to think that you're doing God's work and be opposing God. How many remember when the Apostle Paul was converted? When he gets knocked down and hears the voice from heaven, he says, his first question is, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus Christ whom you're persecuting. And essentially, Paul realizes that, that in that moment, in the name of God, he was, in the name of religion, persecuting the God that he thought he was serving, fighting against the God he thought he was serving. Jesus would later tell us that there would come a time when anyone, John chapter 16, verse 2, who kills you will think they are offering God a service. So what was it that motivated then 
these Jewish religious leaders to persecute Jesus Christ? Well, it began at the story we looked at last week. It was on the Sabbath. Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. And he came by the pool of Bethesda, where there were many lame and invalid and crippled folks. And he picked out one man who'd been lame for 38 years. And he says to the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man miraculously has a healing take place in his body. And he's able to pick up his yoga mat and walk. And it was that act of picking up his bed and walking that the religious leaders thought, aha, they missed the beauty of this guy couldn't walk, 38 years of this, now he's walking. They said, ah, but, we're going to blow the whistle, you have, bro- you have broken the Sabbath. And it's for that reason that breaking a religious rule, and we'll talk a little bit about how this wasn't even a religious rule, how breaking this religion, this rule, led to them eventually, in our text, plotting to kill the Son of God, Jesus. Verse 18, again, they tried to kill him because of two reasons. He broke the Sabbath. Now notice this one. If you're ever in conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or people that don't believe that Jesus is God, verse 18, he was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. And it was for those two reasons that the religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus the Christ. And there are two errors that led to bad religion. And that's where I really want to focus our attention and make sure that we're not following the path of bad religion. Two things that I see in these Jewish religious leaders that led to bad religion. Number one, they were wrong about the rules. And number two, they were wrong about Jesus. And those two things are critical. If you get God's law and God's son wrong, you have missed the boat, even if you think you're on it. And I think Jesus has some correction for us this morning. So we begin by simply talking about the religious leaders being wrong about the rules. They're angry because Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. But let's back up for a second and actually think about this, what they were accusing Jesus of. It's true that in the the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments is to obey the Sabbath or to honor the Sabbath day. I'll just read it to you, but you can read it yourself. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. But it just simply, God tells through Moses, the nation Israel this, Six days you shall do your labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. Now here's where the trouble came in defining what work is. So this is they, all this Sabbath trouble they want to kill Jesus is around how do we determine on the seventh day what qualifies as work? Now, it's likely work would include your vocation, what you do for a living. So take a day off and household chores. So you're not out sweating in the fields. One day out of seven, take the day off. Don't go to work. Take the Sabbath off. Enjoy your family and don't go outside and plow the fields and vacuum the house and wash the dishes. Just take it easy for 24 hours. Now that's a beautiful thank God for the fact that his heart is for rest. And somehow they took that and they defined this word work. The rabbis interpreted work. They gave 39 forbidden things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. 
One of them was that you could not carry a burden. And they went really goofy with this thing. Like one of them was if you had false teeth, they said you have to take them out because you're carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. If you had a wooden leg, you had to unscrew it and put it to the side because you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath day and that piece of wood hooked to your leg, that's a burden. And so it all kind of revolved around the rabbinic tradition of interpreting the law. And that's where things got off the rails. So Jesus and this once crippled man being accused of breaking the Sabbath, actually they broke no law of God. They were right in step with the law of God. They had broken religious additions to the law of God. And that's the problem is when we add to what God said. But most people, I don't know if you've heard this before, will say when they do something, they say, well, I just do what the Bible says or I just read the Bible. And I would say, there are a lot of people that say that, but the the debate comes between what the Bible says and what the Bible means. Because during the Inquisition, I don't know if you know this, during the Spanish Inquisition, people that thought they were doing what the Bible said started prosecuting, hunting down, imprisoning, and killing heretics. During the Spanish Inquisition, they arrested and prosecuted over 150,000 people for heresy by doing what the Bible says. And what happens is you think what the Bible says and you have the interpretation of what the Bible means. And so then your interpretation of what the Bible means means anyone who doesn't agree on that is a heretic, which is funny. I just do what the Bible says, but my interpretation makes you in or out. And so 150,000 people are prosecuted during the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition. 5,000 of them are killed for heresy. Could you imagine if church was like that in America today? Like we're killing people who say they're Christians but have a different view on the atonement. We're killing other Christians who have a different view on Calvinism. We're killing Christians that view the Lord's Supper differently. We're like, heretic, you must die. We will arrest you. We will imprison you. And if we can't get you to renounce your false religion, then you will be tortured and killed. 2,000 people were burned at the stake during the Spanish Inquisition. In the name of God and bad religion. So Jesus here comes on the scene and points out against the institution where they got it wrong. We're talking about religious leaders. They were the ninjas of the Bible, y'all. If you think you've been in the Bible a long time, these men had been studying Torah since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, as my grandpa used to say. They had spent their whole life being discipled in Torah and the prophets. Uh, by, by the end of elementary school, most of these little Jewish boys and girls had memorized the first five books of the Bible. You're like, hey, what does uh, Deuteronomy say? And they just rattle off the whole book. Genesis to Deuteronomy, they had it memorized. And, it, and these rabbis and Jewish leaders had probably the entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, verbatim memorized. But Jesus said, you know all that, and yet you got it wrong. And he points out three ways they got it wrong. Just note these. First of all, you have it wrong about the Sabbath. Look at verse 17, because this is the point of contention. This is where it starts. Like, you don't understand Sabbath, because look at what Jesus says. In his defense, Jesus said, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. In other words, the Sabbath is not to harm, it's to heal. 
And if the Sabbath ceases to be a moment of healing, a day of healing, then you have missed the meaning of Sabbath. So number one, the very reason that you're all mad, you've gotten entirely wrong. You don't understand the Sabbath. You don't understand the Father if you think that He's not working on Sabbath day. Number two, you have it wrong about the Scriptures. Now we're talking, again, these are like serious scholars to tell them they don't know their Bible. It's like telling a group of theologians, hey, y'all don't know what you're talking about from the Scriptures. They're like, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, you don't get the Scriptures. Look at verse 39. You got it wrong You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. So you think God is in the Bible, but they are the very scriptures that are about me, that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the Bible's about Jesus, and you've studied it your whole life, and you haven't even found me. You got it wrong on the Sabbath and the scriptures. And number three, you're wrong about Moses. So they thought Moses was on their side. Moses is on our team. We're Torah scholars. We're Jewish leaders. But look at what Jesus, I mean, this is like all down at once. This is pop that balloon. Do not think I will accuse you before my father, verse 45. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. You thought Moses was on your team? He's on team Jesus. He's not on team Judaism. He's not on team bad religion. He's on team Jesus. And I'm not even going to accuse you because Moses will. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. Verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Boom. So this week, I was reading this article, a very interesting article by this guy who came out of, I won't name the denomination, but it's a very, very legalistic Christian Protestant denomination. Very legalistic, very rules-based. And they had kind of grown up in this environment and finally got freed by grace and, and reading the New Testament and you know the work of grace that God did on their heart. And th- they wrote this article about um, eight signs, eight signs that you're trapped in legalism and your relationship with God. So I just wanted to read them to you briefly. Um, and there may be one of these, you're like, man, I'm still struggling with that one. Um, but, but I would recommend that we all think through, like, as we relate to God, are we relating to him on a grace-based relationship, a gospel-based relationship, or have, has legalism and bad religion snuck in? So eight signs that you're trapped in legalism in your relationship with God. Number one, you believe God loves you, but you don't think he likes you. Like, you almost feel like God's love, therefore he's obligated to love me, but I really think he's wagging his head at me with a disapproving look most of the time. And a lot of that is, you know, father wound stuff, things from your past. But just a view of God that he has to because he's God love me, but he sure doesn't probably like me, at least most of the time. I'm probably one big fat disappointment to God. You're probably trapped in legalism in your relationship with God. Number two, you have never been sure that you're secure. That is your salvation, your place with God is always sort of fragile. I was uh, up at Lake Johnson this week um, running around getting ready for this crazy relay I signed up to do to destroy myself. Um, and I was talking to these Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, because at Lake Johnson they, they put all the little booths up. And so we were having a conversation and I just asked them, I said, hey, so before I leave, can you just tell me, is there a way that, that you could 
help me know that between the time I walk away from you and I go to my house, if I were to die, that I'm okay with God. I just want to be right with God. And there's like, there's, they, they basically said, there's just no way for you to ever know. And, and sometimes for a lot of people, just the fact that you can't trust that you're safe with Jesus means that you're caught up in bad religion. Number three, the world's injustices aren't important to you. Because what happens in bad religion is that you spend most of your time focused on the do's and don'ts and judging everybody and yourself. And so issues outside of just your own little bubble, you kind of disregard the world. Number four, you compare your righteousness to other Christians, constantly playing the compare and contrast game. Number five, you believe outsiders must behave before they belong. And so someone is welcomed into Emmaus. We say, come on in. But religion would say, hey, you have to have the right doctrine before you can belong here. You can, you can come here, but before you're, you can belong here, you have to believe like we do. Number six, your private life doesn't match your public life because it's all about appearances with bad religion. Number seven, you believe in joy and peace. This one really got me, but you've never experienced them. How sad. I wouldn't even want to be a Christian if this was the case. But I think for so many people, it's a joyless, peaceless following of Jesus. And finally, number eight, you only participate in Christian activities with other Christians. You live in this little Christian ghetto subculture. And you, don't, you think that anyone who doesn't believe exactly as you do are, are kind of like, stay away. You're the enemy. When we think about God's law and God's ways and all those things that, that, that we read in the Old Testament, especially around how God has commanded us to live, we have to see the beauty in the law and the perfection in the law and the way that the law shows the beauty in the way of God, but we also must rightly use the law the way that Jesus and the church and the apostles used the law. And that is the law's point is to demonstrate the beauty of God's ways in contrast to ways in which human will live without God in the picture and the way back to shalom is through the beauty of God's law, but the way there is not through the law, it's through Jesus Christ. And the law was intended to show you your need for the Christ. Paul the Apostle said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law was a guardian or a schoolmaster or a tutor to draw you into Christ. So the law was good as long as it led to Christ. When the law leads you away from Christ into bad religion, then you have not used the law the way that God intended for it to be used. And our relationship with God then and his law is through his son Jesus who has made us right with the Father. You could not be good enough to be right with the Father. You might be a really good person like my wife who I look terrible compared to her, if we're going to play the comparison game, which I do sometimes. I think my wife's so much better than I am, so much more holy, so much more self-controlled, so much more everything. But even my wonderful wife isn't good enough. And, and I think the, the point is a lot of times we're trying to be good enough. You will never be good enough. So stop trying, stop playing that game and just decide and realize that the gospel is true, that Jesus was enough, and therefore robed and cloaked in him, you can be right with the Father, but not on your own merit, but on his. 
that your pass into rightness with God the Father is the peace that is brought to you through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. He makes you right with God. Now, it doesn't mean that you being robed in Christ's righteousness and being right with the Father, you're also gonna be a better woman or a better man. Those things happen together. But if my energy is being spent trying to be acceptable to God, I will never get there. But if I simply say, Father, through your son Jesus and my reception of him, I'm robed in a righteousness that doesn't belong to me, that you have given to me, and now I am right before God based on Jesus' account. And the church said, Amen. When you have to call for it, it means you ain't preaching that good. Um, I'm just messing. Um, so bad religion, number one, has it wrong about the rules. Bad religion says the rules are to be kept so that we can be right with God. The gospel says these rules are to show you the beauty of God's ways and to highlight your need for Christ. Number two, bad religion has it wrong about Jesus. Let's not get it wrong about Jesus. This is the one point in all of this morning that I go, that's it. Let's not get it wrong about Jesus. We got to get it right about Jesus and continue to press to find the truth about Jesus. So in this passage, Jesus basically multiple times tells us powerfully who he is. And I just want to throw out a few ways that Jesus shows us who he is in John chapter 5. So you ready for this? We don't want to get it wrong about Jesus. Well, let's just hear what he said about himself. First of all, God is his father and he's equal with God. Verse 18, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So if we're going to honor Jesus and not get it wrong about Jesus, remember that God's his father, he's equal with God. Verse 18, number two, Jesus then does the works of his father. So the things that Jesus does are the things the Father does. Verses, verse 19, the Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. Number three, all authority has been given to Jesus. Verse 22 to 23. Number four, believing on Jesus is the way to life. Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. But then fifthly, and this is I think is huge, Jesus has five sources that testify to who he is. We could do a whole sermon on this, but we won't. He has five specific witnesses that say, if you don't believe me, believe this. Believe them, my five witnesses. He brings up five. John the Baptist, verses 31 through 35. The works that he did, the Father, the Scriptures, and Moses. So if you would, Jesus has five witnesses saying, he is who he says he is. And then next witness, he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. Moses, John the Baptist, his works, the Father, all testify to who Jesus the Christ is. And I would say for us, the, the takeaway this morning is the important, most important warning is a call for me to remember who saves me. The Bible doesn't save you. No religion can save you. None of your own works can save you. Only Jesus can save you. It seems simple, but a lot of people are living in, this, in an alternate reality than this. And when we talk about what Jesus saves us from and for, we have to remember what I've been saved from, a meaningless life, a life of despair, a life that would, left on my own, would lead to all the destructive behavior patterns. But he hasn't just saved me for or from something, he saved me for something. 
for sonship, adoption, relationship, eternal life, beauty, wholeness, health in my mind and my body. But the Bible, religion, trying to be good enough, none of that will save you. Jesus saves from and for. Most of us focus on what we've been saved from. Good, but not good enough. Saved for what? Saved to go out into the world and be his hands and feet. Saved for freedom. Saved to be the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Saved for, what do you save for? Who saved you? It's Jesus. He gets all the credit. To him be the glory and the honor. I don't find this on my own. So religion, if it's done well, church, if it's done well, any leader, the Bible even itself, if it's well interpreted, is only a frame for the picture. Jesus is the picture. Religion is a frame. Church is a frame. But if you spend all your time pointing to the frame, you're missing the picture. Chuck the frame. You can get another one of those. It's the picture. It's the masterpiece that we're like, that is beautiful. And it might look good with a frame, but if that frame doesn't work for it, then throw the frame out. I'm not concerned about frames. Religion. Even church, as good as church is, church is really an ecclesia. It's the people of God gathered around the person of Christ. So the point of church isn't like, well, tell me more about your frame. I don't care about the stinking frame. Look at the picture. If, I'm, if I have a frame on a masterpiece that's distracting from the picture, I chuck the frame. And I, if you are caught up in any form of bad religion, chuck that framework. Get rid of that joker. And, and let's just rethink that. I'm fine with that as long as you don't throw Jesus out. Do you know what a lot of people have done? They have chucked the picture and kept the frame. Like, what is the point? I don't want Christianity without Jesus. And, and give me Jesus all day long, all, all night long, and chuck the frame until we find the right one. And I'm okay with that. And I know a lot of people feel really insecure when their frames get messed with. Don't mess with my framework. Don't mess with my, my, my ideology, my little safe boxes. And I say, like, let's mess with those all day long if they're bad. Let's break them down. Let's deconstruct them as long as we keep the picture where it's supposed to be. As long as we keep the person of Christ as central. That's really all I care about. I mean, I don't care about anything else. When I, when I, like, I read someone like Paul who was jealous for the church to get Jesus, he literally went to war against anything circumcision, the law, the churchianity, religiosity, legalism. He went against everything that would come against the person of Christ. May we be such warriors like this. The danger, though, is this. It'd be easy for me to caricature these religious leaders and be like, oh, those guys, they missed it. But it's the pot calling the kettle black because it's very easy for from this vantage point to look at them 2,000 years ago and to miss the bad religion in my own blood. Inherent bad religion, bad ideologies, bad frames that I have in place around Jesus. Because I, I promise you this, I'm almost positive I could vouch for these guys. They did not intend when they set out studying Torah and the scriptures to come against God. They thought they were doing God's work. But they missed God's son. They missed God when he arrived. 
because the frame had become more important than the picture. It wasn't what they started out to do. I did not become a Christian so that I could become the best guy at doing church. I became a Christian because I wanted the joy and the peace and the love of Christ. Somehow in the process though, the religious system can get into your blood where it's almost like church is more than Jesus. And it happens so subtly in our, in our Christian life. If you've lost the joy of Jesus, man, I would say let, like, let, let us return to the joy that's found in Christ. Because these Jewish men and women did not set out, I don't believe, to walk away from Jesus or walk away from God but they knew the God of the word, but they did not know, or they, they knew the word of God, but not the God of the word. They had no heart connection with the Father. That's the thing that scares me the most about being a professional Christian, is that I could be good at it and miss the Father. I'd rather be bad at church, bad at preaching, bad at being a professional Christian. I'd be like, but the guy knows God. <laughs> And God knows him, but he's terrible as a church person. I don't care. <laughs> I, if I, if I got to exchange one for the other, like let me be terrible about church and terrible about all the right things to do in America to have church. But, but the guy knows the Father. Because Jesus starts pointing out to these guys, you don't actually know what you think you know. Like notice he says, um, uh, verse 37 this is, this is a horrible thing for a Torah scholar to hear from Jesus. You have never heard the Father's voice nor seen him. You've never seen his form. Nor does his, his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You are living under a false presupposition that you know God. You have never seen him or his form. You don't know him. You, his word is not even in you. You have it in your brain, but it's not here. His word doesn't dwell in you. I was uh, thinking back to this time in my life where I was trying to be a good church guy. I mean, I got saved, became a pastor very young. And so my whole identity was like, I got to be an awesome pastor. I just want to be an awesome pastor. And so I tried to plant a church. I tell you, you, you want to like humble yourself? Try planting a church. You will feel like you don't know up from down, <laughs> left from right. And I was, I, was, I was young when I started planting this church. And uh, I had a few really good men around me, which was helpful. That's why I surround myself as much as I can. If I find a good man, I will plead for him to stay. Please stay at Emmaus. I need you, and so does everybody else. I need good people around me. And so I had a really good friend, a uh, lot more mature than I was, who was helping me pastor and lead this church. And um, we were having this elders meeting, and I was, I was just kind of complaining, as sometimes I do um, with my elders. Um, and telling them like some of my frustrations with myself and the church and frustrations that I was just, you know, overall this angst. And I was just kind of being Debbie Downer that day, just kind of letting it fly. And this one friend of mine, uh, he goes, hey, Brian, like, can I just say something? He goes, everything you're saying is reminding me of my five-year-old daughter. <laughs> so he just called me a little girl at the elders meeting. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> How's that going to help? And he goes, no, but listen, she just learned how to ride her bike. And uh, so we taught her how to ride her bike, and she'd be out riding her bike for just a few minutes, 
after the training wheels came off. And then she would run in the house and say, Dad, come out and watch me ride my bike. I don't know if I'm doing it right. Can you just check and make sure? And so at first he humored her, but every few minutes he'd say, okay, now you got this, sweetheart. Have fun. Two minutes later, hey, Dad, come outside. I think I might not be getting it right. Like, can you just come and show me how to ride my bike? And finally he said, sweetheart, listen. The point of riding bikes is not to keep checking in to make sure you're doing it right. The point is to enjoy life. Go ride around, enjoy riding a bike, and don't overthink it. I'm just telling you right now, the dad said to the little girl, you know how to ride a bike, now go ride it and be free. And I think he, he basically told me, Brian, you're supposed to enjoy the ride with God. Like, enjoy God. Enjoy being saved. Stop overthinking it so much. And I think some of y'all just need to chill. Just stop. Don't come back in the house and ask if you're riding the bike ride. Go for a bike ride. Invite some friends over. Go ride down to the store and get some candy. Just have fun. But, but the, the point of Jesus doing all that he did to save you was so that she would just enjoy. And, and there's this call back to enjoying Jesus. This call back to just relax. He's taking care of it. He's good. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. And don't let bad religion make you into this uptight, never secure, second-guessing yourself and judging others Christian. I don't want any part of that kind of Christianity. If you're telling me that being a Christian means I got to judge everybody else and constantly be on myself, I'm sorry, I quit. I'm going to go look for the picture of Jesus without a frame, stare at that for a while, fall in love with it, and then shop around for a frame later. And I think for some of us, the word of the Lord this morning is just relax and enjoy God for once. If you have not experienced the peace and joy of Jesus lately, I would say you're probably doing Christianity wrong. And I'll finish with this. Jesus said, verse 24, Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. Quit judging yourself. Quit judging other people. You believe in Jesus and his word, you're not going to be judged. And you have crossed over from death to life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can read a passage of Scripture like this with all of its complexity and, and nuance and come back to this very, very important idea that because of Jesus and our trust in Him, we are not going to be judged. And not only that, but we have crossed over. We are a people who've come across from death into life. I pray for each and every one of us that when we describe our life with God, it would be just that. I am living life. I have life, eternal life, present life, full life because of the finished work of Jesus. Save us from bad religion. Save us from legalism. Save us from uptightness and joyless Christianity peaceless Christianity, judgmental Christianity. 
Oh God, we long to be a part of a, a community, to continue to foster a community of men and women who are so excited about and pointing to the work of Jesus that we would be so focused on him that whatever frameworks you choose to, to bring into our community, God, we, we, we embrace them. But, but at the end of the day, we want to be those who love and follow Jesus Christ. And so I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here this morning that's been a part of this journey through John 5 with me today, that we would come back to the basics, come back to Jesus and, and whatever burdens we are carrying this morning, especially religious ones, especially bad ones, especially legalistic ones, that suddenly, God, I pray people right now would just start getting free, just getting released from that old bad, tired way of thinking, that old, uh, old system way of thinking. Father, bring in something new, something fresh, something Jesus-looking, Jesus-like. And Father, save us from those things which would bring us back across from life back into death. We do not want to cross back the other way. It took us so, it was so hard to get across from death to life. We don't want to go back to death. And everything or anything that's bringing us back to death, rebuke that, destroy that, bring that down, and may Christ raise us back up again. So this morning, I know you can do great things in just moments by overcoming bad mindsets. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray bad mindsets would just be torn down. That thoughts and imaginations that raise themselves against Jesus would be torn down and, and put down and put in their place and that Jesus would rise and your gospel and your way would come back to us again. So we receive you, Jesus, and we reject bad religion. We receive your grace and we embrace all things that point us back to you. But anything that does not, we push that to the side and we just ask that you would come freshly into this space in Jesus' name. Amen.